Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, February 1st, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland. And you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. It's been an action-packed week with President Trump's State of the Union address, significant Russia investigation revelations, and growing hostility between House Republicans and the FBI. Oh, and we still don't have an immigration deal. Before we begin, a reminder. Subscribe to the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening app. Rate us and write a review. Let's kick it off. Our first guest today is Alana Shore, congressional reporter for Politico. Hi, Alana. Hi, Charlie. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. So our first data point today is six. That's the number of days left until the next government shutdown deadline. And there are 31 days left until the deadline for a fix to the DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Now, Congress is expected to pass another short-term spending agreement to avoid another shutdown, but uncertainty and chaos continue to surround the negotiations in each of those areas. But before we talk a little bit about – or before we talk about the shutdown and uh, immigration deals that are uh, percolating, you came today a little bit late. And I must note that uh, Bridget, our producer, was raging in the microphone about that. But you came in late. <laughs> I was very apologetic. I knew you were. Um, we understood because you were on deadline filing a story about uh, the infamous – Devin Nunes memo. So uh, walk us through that. Take us up to speed on that. Now, uh, it's important to note that we are recording this on Thursday and and events may get ahead of us. But here it's Thursday uh, afternoon and uh, you just filed a story on the Devin Nunes memo situation. Where, Where do things stand there? Well, what listeners need to know about the memo is it was written by House Republicans on the Intelligence Committee, and it details alleged abuses at the FBI related to the surveillance of a man named Carter Page. Now, if you're a nerd in the Russia probe, you will already know Carter Page. He's a bald, uh, late 30s, I believe, and and prone to some some pretty lavish rhetorical stylings, which he likes to display on TV. Now, he also served as an energy advisor to the Trump campaign. He also has close ties to Russia, specifically the Kremlin and folks close to the Kremlin. Now, it was this fact, his ties to Russia, that had him on the FBI's radar even before he joined the Trump campaign. What the memo alleges is that the FBI mishandled surveillance of him. And why the memo is so politically significant is that the White House, by all accounts, is gearing up to use this memo as a possible pretext, grounds to further its own campaign against the Russia probe. So what we have here is the House Republicans effectively handing a new weapon to the Trump administration and the president himself, as the president is reportedly considering firing Rod Rosenstein, the man overseeing that probe. And we have Senate Republicans raising a yellow light. The Senate Intelligence Committee's Republican chairman, his staff couldn't even get access to this memo when they asked for it. So it's become this very shadowy symbol of an effort to undercut Robert Mueller, and it could get released even before this podcast goes to press, although my guess is no. 
And it strikes me also that the FBI has raised uh, you know, very serious concerns about the, the content of the memo. Sure. Well, I mean, on a certain level, it's not surprising because the memo, uh, by all accounts, is geared to discredit the FBI. But the FBI specifically notes that uh, it essentially is cherry picking information, which, uh, you know, is a serious, serious step, especially since a Democratic memo that attempts to present a different point of view, more vindicating the FBI, isn't getting released. Republicans voted against releasing that. Well, it's had a tremendous effect of muddying the waters this week in Washington, so we'll have to watch it closely uh, over the, the coming days. And you may even have to file again later today, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I expect uh, it. <laughs> yeah. so, so let's move to the other news this week, um, budget negotiations. Where do things stand on that? Uh, and uh, what are the sticking points? Like, what, what's the problem? What's holding up the, the, the deal? I wouldn't say we've seen a lot of new developments. As you sort of pointed out earlier, things are still in this chaotic stalemate over the budget. We're headed to another short-term stopgap spending bill. Um, but it's important to to remember that the DACA deadline you mentioned of early March has also been muddied by the legal system. Uh, right now, the Trump administration isn't seeking any kind of injunction on a ruling that effectively allows DACA recipients to stay in the system. So lawmakers and their staff is considering, you know, early March being the deadline, but they may have some wiggle room. And and some lawmakers are openly saying maybe the best solution here is just to delay March 5th because it was purely a President Trump invented cutoff point. And so what role is the White House playing in these talks? The White House is uh, sending its folks to the Hill often as they usually do, but taking a, a, a more or less hands-off approach on the budget, on immigration, they have a four-step framework that they announced to Republicans earlier, and Republicans met <laughs> met it with very mixed reviews. I'm being diplomatic here. A lot of conservatives didn't like the fact that the White House was open to giving a path to citizenship for more than a million immigrants. Uh, Democrats hated the fact that this plan would effectively lead to a huge cut in legal immigration. So, so the framework is polarizing, to say the least. And so, one of the the you know so called pillars in the, in that framework was uh, that they want uh, X amount of dollars. I, I think it was the last I saw was twenty five billion dollars to fund the border wall that the president campaigned on and talks about all the time. Is that put that number in some context? Are, are Democrats okay with that? I mean, is that a point that everyone can agree on? Uh, X amount of dollars for the for a border wall. I think some Democrats were extremely frustrated when Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader, put that number on the table before the government shut down, which, if you can believe it, was just about a week ago. Um, And that number has since been pulled from the table by Chuck Schumer. So Democrats were never okay with it. And now they're even less open to discussing that kind of an investment. Democrats are more perhaps okay with like a one to two-ish billion dollars. Oh. <laughs> Big gap. Uh, that's not a lot in Washington dollars. <laughs> uh, so another pillar. I want to ask you about this because uh, I find it uh, – the, the whole debate about this pillar uh, utterly fascinating for, for lots of different reasons. And, and I think you'll be able to explain it really well. So the, the whole business about so-called chain migration or family unification. Why is it so contentious to uh, why is the language surrounding that pillar so contentious? Maybe you can explain a little bit about that and why it uh, why it has occupied so much of our time in Washington and why it's so important uh, to the two sides to to sort of win the battle over uh, what term to use in discussing this pillar. Um, well, Hispanic Democrats in particular. Uh, have said this is racially biased because it essentially demeans the importance of unifying families. Um, And I think Republicans point to Democrats freely using this phrase, 
years in the past. They say this is a sudden switch. This is just part of a rhetorical campaign to essentially make the GOP look insensitive towards Hispanics and towards immigrants. So it's it's really more of a, of a political debate over terminology, but one that is hugely impactful because Hispanic Democrats, especially in the House, are putting a lot of pressure on leadership to not accept too much of a compromise from the White House. And it also seems, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it also strikes me that uh, there are uh, political high stakes attached to whichever term – uh, ultimately ends up getting adopted uh, as the term of art for this. Meaning the polling sh- – uh, the polling that I – or at least some polling that I've seen suggests that Americans uh, do not look favorably uh, uh, when asked about the idea of chain migration because it connotes in their mind some uh, – lots of people coming in um, uh, unfettered. Whereas when you say family unification – it takes on a different meaning in many people's minds. And so to me, that is the real importance for, for both parties and why they insist on, on trying to control the language that's used. You make a great point. I think fundamentally, though, we're dealing with terminology that both parties are using with their base. You know, I mean, I think I have yet to see a compelling poll that looks at how independents actually view immigration on a granular level. And, and they're going to be the ones who decide in the midterm elections how important this issue really proves. Okay, so right now the uh, Republicans uh, are in West Virginia. They're meeting, uh, talk a little bit about their agenda at a retreat. Democrats will uh, also have their retreat. Uh, will the parties emerge from these retreats uh, more united? And what are they what are they talking about behind closed doors? I mean, I think many of our listeners would have seen on on the cable news yesterday the you know the train taking lots of members to West Virginia hit, hits the truck, and of course all the members were safe, but there were several fatalities. What are they doing, and what is so important that They would all go on a train and and go a couple states away to talk about the agenda. Well, this is a a common practice for the congressional majority. House Democrats are actually having their own retreat next week on the eastern shore of Maryland. Senate Democrats uh, did theirs with no press access over the course of one day in Mount Vernon, uh, something listeners might not know about. Um, But the Republicans have always made a habit of allowing a lot of press access because they want to tout their agenda. They want to sell what they're doing to the voters, particularly given President Trump's low approval ratings. And what that comes down to, frankly, is celebrating their tax bill. I think, and I know that Paul Ryan has been saying behind the scenes, the tax bill is going to be the key to preventing a democratic takeover, which we often see the first two years into a president's term. So Alana, it feels like a thousand days ago, but it was really only two days ago that we had uh, President Trump's State of the Union speech and the whole country was able to see uh, in color and up close the uh, depth to which our members of Congress are polarized uh, just by watching the various crowd scenes and the reaction to the president's statements. You spent a lot of time writing about this, thinking about it, um, and covered it. Can you talk a little bit about um, what – did anything surprise you uh, in the speech? Did anything catch you off guard? Like what, what moments will you remember from that speech? I will remember how few Republicans stood up when he talked about immigration because I personally believe if a deal will happen at all – it will be very plain, just DACA for some money for the wall. And we could talk about, you know, the uniquely polarizing language he used, but that's not new for Trump. The line, Americans are dreamers, too, really angered Democrats. Um, I was seeing some some Twitter traffic among prominent liberals calling that line the new all lives matter, basically suggesting that the plight of undocumented immigrants wasn't important compared to, you know, regular Americans. But rhetoric aside, it was this, it was the Republicans' patterns of standing up. 
Because, you know, when it's your president, you want to share every word he says. But when Trump started talking about immigration, you could see it on TV. Republicans were standing up in such a scattershot way. And I think it shows how much work the administration has to do to get this deal they want and how I frankly believe they'll fail. Was there any single moment that surprised you? Any single moment that Trump said or during his speech? Anything he said. I would, for example, I was surprised by uh, the mention of prison reform. Um, but was there anything else or was it pretty standard in, in terms of what you were expecting from that speech? I would say it was pretty standard. I mean, even prison reform didn't surprise me because that's something Jared Kushner has been interested in. He probably wanted to to toss that out there. Rhetorically, I wouldn't say this surprised me, but I think other presidents will do it in the future. The fact that Trump went to like the broad feel-good success stories first and then dug into the policy later. So it was a pretty long speech. It, it almost set the record. And midway through the speech, you were seeing reporters on Twitter going, is he going to discuss any policy? Because he started out with the flowery language that previous presidents ended with. And I think that's probably a working formula because it sort of gets members feeling good, like, I support, you know, this person, X success story you're mentioning to me. And it gets them in the mood to just celebrate anything you have to say later and not remember the details. So is there any long-term meaning to this or uh, any takeaway from this? Or will this all just dissipate into the Washington weather by this weekend? I would say the latter. <laughs> well, thank you for clarifying that for, uh, for me. <laughs> Got to be honest, Charlie. Right. Well, things are moving really quickly in any case, and uh, we're going to keep a close eye on all these moving parts as we move toward the February 8th deadline. Uh, and with that, Alana, I will release you because I know that you have more deadlines to meet. I can tell that your iPhone is just blowing up right now. Well, it's nose to the grindstone time. Thanks again. Thank you. Our second data point today is eight. That's the number of Republican committee chairs who have decided to leave office at the end of this Congress. The latest committee chairman to announce his retirement was Trey Gowdy of South Carolina, the House Oversight Committee chairman, who announced Wednesday that he would not seek re-election. Here to join us is John Bresnahan, Congressional Bureau Chief for Politico. Bres, you wrote about this yesterday, in, in or, or maybe it was two days ago. Either way, it was one of my favorite stories on Politico this week. I just love that story because I thought it, it provided so much insight into this trend and also explained why it matters and, and why we should care. Uh, the headline was the demise of one of the best gigs in Congress. So can you explain a little bit about why is it a big deal? Who cares if uh, a whole bunch of committee chairmen are leaving? Well, there's, uh, as you said, there was eight committee chairmen leaving. There's actually nine, uh, if you count Diane Black of Tennessee, who gave up her chairmanship of the budget committee in order to run for governor of Tennessee. So, uh you lose expertise, you lose experience, you lose uh, just priceless, kind of a priceless asset to the House. Members spend their whole careers on committees. Uh, if they don't run for leadership, they, they spend their whole career serving on committees, g gaining expertise in issues, becoming really be getting into issues, uh, say an armed services committee or an appropriations committee or ways and means, one of the, one of the big committees, transportation. And then they rise to the chairmanship and they're supposed to bring this expertise and this experience and this ability to understand what the other party wants because they've worked with them on these issues for, for decades, years or decades. And then they have to leave. So uh, I mean there, it, it's good that there is some turnover but this is an extraordinary amount of turnover in, 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 in one Congress to see this many chairmen leaving. 
So who are the kinds of people that left? Are they, you know, old folks that are sort of on their way out of Congress or is it, is it across the board? Is there some young folks? What's the profile of these folks who are stepping down? Well, it's interesting. Uh, some of them have been term limited out. Uh, there's a six-year limit for Republicans as term limit or ranking member. That means you're either the chairman or the top Republican on the committee at six years. Uh, in the case of some of these members, Bob Goodlett of Virginia, Lamar Smith of Texas, they've served as chairman of their committees for six years, so they term limited out. Actually, they even served as chairman of other committees before this. So they've had experience as chairman. So they're veteran members. They're, but you look at somebody like Gowdy, who hasn't been in Congress that long, or Jason Chaffetz, who left earlier in the year. He was oversight committee chairman. Uh, he left for a gig on Fox News. I mean, those are, are you know, relatively junior members. They're, they're, they're not brand new. They've been here about a decade, eight, ten years. But um, they're nowhere near the most senior members of their conference. And th- having them leave, and these are, these are high-profile members, I mean, it does. It's a blow. It's a blow to the whole conference. And it's hard to replace some of this expertise. Well, I think uh, it's an important point you made, the idea that a lot of the, these folks were term limited in their committee chairmanships. Because as I take that, I read that to say uh, it's a recognition by members of Congress that, you know what, it just sucks to be a member of Congress these days. But it's at least tolerable if I have some clout and if I have the position of a committee chairmanship. Is is there some truth to that? That It's a reflection of just how unpleasant it is to be in Congress unless you have some sort of position like that? I, th- I think there's something there's something to be said for that. I mean, the, the whole country has become more partisan, and Congress has become uh, more partisan, way more partisan. There is no middle anymore. You're either left or you're right. If you're in the middle, you're getting run over. Uh, so there are these huge ideological divides, um, and in the Congress, one of the things that happened was in 1994, Republicans won control of the House. Newt Gingrich led them the Republican Revolution. They took control of the House. They've been out of power for 40 years. And one of the things they instituted was term limits on chairman. In the 40 years of democratic rule, chairman had become extraordinarily powerful. The chairman were in some ways were more powerful than the speaker. They could they could uh, stop uh, legislation from moving. For instance, uh, Howard Smith, uh, the Rules Committee chairman in the 50s and 60s, the Democrat, he was from Virginia. He was he was a segregationist. He didn't want civil rights legislation, so he he bottled up civil rights legislation for years. Um, so one of the in- reforms they instituted, Republicans instituted, and it was a needed reform. Was they put term limits on chairman? They said you get six years as a chairman or ranking member, and then. You, you have to give up the post. And the idea was that um, this would promote uh, uh, diversity in the conference, that this would give other members a chance to share. It would prevent any one member or any group of members from becoming too powerful. But what happened is now you have it – you've had a couple other changes. You had that the uh, – uh, Gingrich instituted what was called a steering committee to elect uh, – uh, to decide committee assignments, including chairman. So what you have is these members have to uh, win the support of the leadership for their uh, for their positions. They, Gingrich blew up the seniority system. I mean it was the old days you just served on a committee. If you stayed in Congress, you rose and rose and rose. You eventually became the chairman and you know then you got your chance to run the place, OK? Won your panel. But now Gingrich blew that up and he said the leadership gets to vet who's ever going to be chairman. So he put turbulence on chairman. He gave the leadership a big say someone who gets to be a chairman. So this gave tremendous power to the leadership. And again, leadership has no term limits, OK? So what he's reined in the power of the chairman 
and, and, and now you have these huge ideological divides. You combine that with relatively weak chairmen. So you have a, a leadership that has all the power, but it's so, you know, the partisanship between Republicans and Democrats is so bitter that all they do is they play this daily game of we're going to, you know, we're going to screw the other side. We're going to get them on this. We're going to get them on that. I mean, there's really very hard to uh, to even govern, even do minimalist govern, governing, you know, passing annual spending bills. That's become much more difficult. So, I mean, you have all these factors uh, that were reforms, that were needed reforms that are now playing into making Congress a less efficient, less effective, less pleasurable, less enjoyable place to be. So in this post-1994 era that you're walking us through, is it possible for any uh, – is, is there is it possible for, say, a Republican squish to, to uh, get a committee chairmanship or is that just never going to happen because they'll never be ideologically pure enough? They, I mean it becomes very difficult. Well, I mean they, they, there's, you know, there's uh, you know, an unofficial litmus test for chairman. They have to raise money for the members of their committee, so, which means they have to go out – and, uh, uh, you know, they, they set these very high um, dues. They, 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 there's something called the National Republican Congressional Committee and Democrats have the Demo- Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. These are the campaign arms of House Democrats and House Republicans. And they set dues, these unofficial dues for members and say, if you're a committee chairman, you have to raise $800,000 a cycle. And that goes to the NRCC. And then you have to raise money for your own committee members. And then, you know, you've already had to, uh, uh, you know, pass a litmus test for your leadership. So it becomes much harder for moderates to, 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 to rise to committee chairmanships. In fact, and, and frankly, with the partisanship in Congress, there are fewer moderates. And then when they get to – if they ever get to committee chairmanships, you know, you have this powerful leadership that intrudes on everything they do and says, you know, you're, you're pushing that legislation. We don't like that legislation. So that's, you know, even if you pass it out of your committee, you're not going to get anywhere. But isn't but, there a little wiggle room, meaning the speaker uh, can give, you know, at, at his or her discretion can give, you know, an extra term or two or the conference would sign off on that if they want to keep somebody? I mean, how much discretion is there, if any? They can get a waiver, but it's usual. It's unusual. For instance, there's some chairmanships that are appointed directly by the speaker. For instance, the Budget Committee and the Rules Committee, the Intelligence Committee, these are speaker appointments. Um, so they, they can get waivers and they, you know, they they normally do. Uh, for instance, David Dreyer, California, he was a Rules Committee chairman. He got waivers under John Boehner when his term was up as uh, – when his statutory term was up as uh, – uh, rules committee chairman, but he was effective at the job, so they left him in there. So they can get waivers, and you can, you know, members talk about getting waivers for the other standing committees, uh, but it doesn't usually happen because, you know, they've gotten into that job because somebody had a term limit, and now, you know, the next guy beneath him in the rung, the next guy in the ladder wants to get in that job too. So, I mean, what you what you have is kind of a, a perfect storm of. Uh, a bad system. And I'm not saying the Democrats are any better, but for Republicans, you have, have a very powerful or, or a leadership with a lot of authority. But in the case of Speaker Ryan and, and, and Speaker Boehner, you have a party that's fractured and the, the wings of the party are driving the agenda. And Ryan always has to be, you know, he always has to be watching out for his right wing. So they limit how far Ryan can go on stuff. And, and so you have a, a, a speakership hobbled by partisanship in some ways or, or the ideological purity of the party. You have weak chairman who can't set an agenda and can't do anything. They have to wait for leadership to act on everything. It's just kind of a perfect storm of what uh, what a bad Congress looks like. So, Press, does any of this matter if the House flips? I mean, if Democrats win back a majority, does it matter at all? 
Well, at that point, you'll have uh, Ryan uh, will be he'll be out as speaker. Uh, I guess he could stay as minority leader, but the anticipation would be that we would see him leave. You probably have the whole leadership being cleared out, so you would still have Republicans jockeying for ranking member spots for the top, you know, uh, top minority spot on those committees, and those are important because with those jobs, you get staff and you get budget. Uh, and that is for members, that's a huge deal. Having more staff and having a budget is a huge thing for a member. You get – right now they get uh, what's called a member uh, allowance and then they're, they're allowed to uh, – uh, a member representation allowance, which is an MRA. It helps them run their office. They can hire staff and they, they can pay a certain number of people. Um, when you get a committee – or a subcommittee chairmanship, that's gravy. So you get a lot more people. For instance, if you get energy and commerce, if you're chairman or ranking member, you're going to have dozens of staffers. That gives you eyes and ears everywhere. That gives you the ability to be in many places and have jurisdiction over a lot of issues. So there's still, even in your minority, you still want to be a ranking member. You still want to do it. But yes, being chairman is, you know, you get, you know, you might have 70, 80, or more staffers, depending on the size of the committee. Well, I know you think I'm a stalker on this issue because mm-hmm. I, uh, after you wrote this story, I wrote you <laughs> a, a very nice email uh, because I loved it so much. And then I tweeted about it. And then we have you here and I'm grilling you with more questions. And I'll get you after the segment's over mm-hmm. to answer more questions. But either way, I think it's a testament to – it's just a great story. I think uh, our listeners uh, really need to, to, to read it. It's one of my favorite uh, stories that I've read in, in uh, Politico in a while. Uh, and that's called the, uh, the Demise of One of the Best Gigs in Congress. Brez, thanks. Thanks. So I'm excited today. We've got two newcomers to Nerdcast, Brianna Ely and Sarah Carlin-Smith, healthcare reporters uh, for Politico. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Excited to be here. Hi, Brianna. Hi. Thanks for having us. So our third data point today is 17. Well, actually, slightly less than 17. That's the number of hours between your scoop and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Brenda Fitzgerald's resignation. Sarah, tell us why the CDC director resigned on Wednesday. So we found that Brenda Fitzgerald, the head of the CDC, after she was already in office and leading the nation's public health work, was continuing to purchase new stock. In particular, we found she was buying new tobacco stock as well as drug company stock, other health insurance issues. And that was seen as really a big conflict of interest because she's leading the nation's anti-smoking tobacco work. It's the number one cause. Smoking and tobacco is the number one cause of preventative disease and death in the U.S. And here we have the head of the agency trying to stop that, actually investing, potentially making money off of the sale of tobacco. And this came after a number of months of scrutiny from the Hill about her slow walking her other financial investments, including investments that conflict with her job. So it kind of all boiled over the other day. Geez, you'd think the, the tobacco stocks might be a, a red line for the CDC director. Uh, but uh, Brianna, tell us a little bit about the uh, other ethical conflicts that Sarah's uh, referring to. I mean, in the, in the business of, of slow walking, you know, I don't know much about her background, but I sort of gather that she has been dragging her feet in terms of the the the, uh, the financial documents, the records, and what's what's been revealed. Right. So what we found, the stock that we reported, um, she had actually sold in October, 
But she was still hanging on, and to this day, we assume, still has um, investments in two companies that are health companies and do work in cancer detection and health IT, potentially relating to the opioid crisis. So on her ethics agreement that we requested from HHS and the Office of Government Ethics, um, it said that she had to recuse herself from that work. Um, so Congress was getting a little a little frustrated with the fact that she hadn't divested this stock. And um, they had told our colleagues that they, um, that she was going to divest in that, and she never did. So, you have any sense of why? I mean, what, what was the problem? Why drag her? So, she owned um, basically stake in two private companies. One um, does a lot of with like health medical records and opioid databases. Opioids, again, big CDC issue right now. The other does cancer detection work. Again, kind of disease prevention detection is a big CDC issue. And those were considered what people would say are non-liquid assets. So in a sense, she couldn't just sell it and take the money and run. She had legal obligations there. And our understanding was she was looking at, was there a way she could transfer that money to someone else in her family? Um, But our understanding is she just couldn't figure out a way to get rid of these assets. And this was hundreds of thousands of dollars of conflicting financial holdings, and it was preventing her from testifying in front of Congress. Um, And I think lawmakers were basically kind of like frustrated. They were like, either you need to be able to do your job or you need to get out. And here we are. So what does this mean for uh, newly installed uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar in the future? Is is this a a wound for him uh, or does it not matter because it's so early in his tenure? What does it mean for him going forward? I think it probably comes off as a positive for him because we know he wanted to come in after everything that happened with the first HHS secretary, Tom Price, who left office after our colleagues found out he was using public money to take private planes, spending thousands of dollars flying all over the country for his work instead of much less money, which of public money he would have spent if he was using normal commercial airlines. So HHS has just had this air of kind of scandal controversy hanging over it. And Azar has wanted to kind of come in and make sure everything is kind of clean house, shore things up, make sure the agency kind of looks respectable again. So I think we don't know for sure how much he pushed Brenda Fitzgerald out. But I think it definitely helps his image to say, okay, let's start over. Let's start fresh. Let's have an HHS that's obeying by the rules and working to protect the health of Americans. So I think it definitely gives him a good fresh start there. So I noticed uh, on Twitter there was uh, a lot of talk about this story. And uh, in our newsroom, there was – you know, I have to say there was was a lot of pride about – uh, what you had uncovered and the results it had. It's the kind of accountability journalism that we all as journalists live for. So let me use that to transition into questions about the deets. Now, spill the details about how you got the story, how it went down. Let's start from the beginning. How does a story like this start? Was there a tip? Were you scrutinizing records? How did this start? Well, first, we should say there's actually two other health reporters that were on this story with us. So Jennifer Habercorn and Rachna Pradhan were um, also digging through um, Fitzgerald's records with us. And so Rachna, I believe, or, or Jen, one of the two that report on the Hill more often, got a tip before um, a hearing that Fitzgerald was supposed to be testifying at that she would no longer be testifying And we heard that it was divestment related. And so we followed up on that. And actually, one of the senators at the hearing made kind of a cryptic remark about it. 
And so we followed up with their staff and they sort of led us to HHS and yeah, so we started a bunch of document requests because um, there's a stock, there's what's called the, the Stock Act, and it requires members of Congress as well as high-level government officials to submit regular reports about their financial holdings. So we did an initial request, and we basically got all this paperwork that showed all of the financial holdings which Gerald had once she started office, but we couldn't figure out, okay, well, did she get rid of it as you're essentially supposed to as the CDC director? They basically HHS... Um, has a level above and beyond what the Office of Government Ethics requires. And you basically can't own any stock or you have to recuse from a lot of activities. And so that gave us a sense that, wow, this woman has a lot of money, but we need kind of more. So then we started asking for other things, like we FOIA'd her ethics agreement. And then we FOIA'd her calendar to see what activities she was or wasn't participating in. And then finally, how we were really able to piece everything together was a few months later, we were able to get her more updated financial transaction reports. And that's when it came in that not only did she come in with all these assets and was being very slow to get rid of them, but that when she was in this process where you're supposed to be kind of freeing yourself of all those conflicts, she was adding new ones. And that was really like the big revelation, and you're able to kind of piece together all those tips and documents into one cohesive story. So what was Dr. Fitzgerald's response when we went to her with these findings? So we got a very basic response from the Health and Human Services Office, basically saying um, her financial advisor made these purchases, she, and she immediately sold them. They never told us whether she was or wasn't aware the financial advisor was making these purchases, whether she signed off on them, whether she had given her financial advisor any notification like, hey, I'm the head of the CDC now. I can't own certain things. Um, So we got very limited information there. But then after the story came out and after she resigned, the CDC director gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal. She also, according to the Obama's um, head of the CDC, Tom Frieden, talked to him and said, oh, I had no idea, you know, my financial advisor was doing this. She also, one of the other things we have uncovered throughout our reporting is how much conflicting stock she held when she was the Georgia public health commissioner. And there's very loose ethics ethics laws there. Um, So she owned five tobacco companies there. She owned tons of drug company stock, tons of food company stock, Coca-Cola, which when she was there um, in Georgia, she got some scrutiny for working with them on a project. So she claimed she knew about none of that. Um, And, you know, her assets were just somewhere else. It's hard for us to know whether we can believe that or not, because, again, we gave HHS multiple opportunities to put her on the phone with us to talk to or just for them to say to us, this is the story, you know, this was sort of managed, her money was kind of managed, and she just wasn't really following it. And she wasn't aware, but they never told us that. And I think it's important to note on the ethics agreement that you sign, it does say that you're responsible for telling if you're if you have a financial manager buying stock, you're responsible for that either way. So even if she didn't know this, she was responsible for advising that person against buying something like tobacco stock as a CDC director. I'll never understand the political class. I mean, uh, you'd think they'd learn by now that lack of transparency, foot dragging, stonewalling reporters only whets your appetite and sharpens your determination to uh, land a story like that. So let me ask one last question about this. Uh, this story's gotten lots of uh, attention, uh, you know, across the country. What is it, what happens afterwards? Uh, 
what is there blowback? Talk a little bit about uh, what happens next for the CDC, but also I'm curious to know what was the reaction that that you two got? Did you hear from old high school friends? I mean, your story had an enormous impact. It was a very important piece of accountability journalism. Do you hear from high school friends? Are your parents proud? I mean, like, uh, are, what do your sources say? What was the reaction on Twitter? Uh, is it a partisan reaction? What? T- tell me a little bit about that. I think we both, um, talking to public health groups that we, most of our sources are since we cover public health and pharmaceutical, um, the pharmaceutical industry, I think I was sort of surprised to hear that public groups are kind of disappointed because she was a very respected public health official in Georgia. And um, she was known for being very evidence-based, being like, you know, the real deal. So I think a lot of people kind of had mixed feelings. Like they really liked her and thought she was doing a decent job at the CDC, but obviously also understood that this was a huge conflict that she couldn't really carry her responsibilities on while having this. Um, So I think that was most surprising to me and, and like, um, Tom Frieden, the director of the CDC under Obama, he also, you know, he wished her well and he said, um, you know, he only said good things about her. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of blowback, at least from the public health world against her, just sort of understanding like, OK, this was wrong. Let's I think the on. other thing is um, before she became the CDC director, people felt like there were some names floated for that job under Trump that maybe would have been worse I don't want to say worse may sound in the sense of these were people that had less public health knowledge, maybe held public health views that are seen as not science or evidence-based. And so I think people probably breathed a sigh of relief when she was appointed, Um, whether they maybe agree with all her political views. They felt like she was a good public health official. So there was this disappointment. In terms of like general reaction, I think I haven't seen too much pushback from people on Twitter. There are always those people that are like, well, you know, of course, people have financial advisors and they're not making those decisions themselves. People that completely kind of agree with that and give her free reign. It is kind of cool when you have a story like this, though. A lot of times, you know, especially we report on very wonky health policy and live in this kind of insulated Washington health bubble. But to actually have a story that gets so much attention that, you know, relatives are like, oh, I heard you on the radio talking about this this morning. So you do sort of realize, okay, our work, you know, expands this little D.C. regional area. Well, I think it's great to uh, to see that kind of uh, journalism have some resonance and get recognized ac- across the country. Thank you both so much for coming here. It's been great having you. Sarah, thanks for, the, for coming. Yeah, thanks for having us. Brianna, thanks again. Thanks. That's it for today's show. Thank you to our listeners, our producers, Bridget Mulcahy and Micaela Rodriguez, our researcher, Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator, Bill Cookman. And if you like the show and want to support the Nerdcast, subscribe, rate us, and write a review. We'll talk to you next week.